morning church family. Um, if you've got a Bible, would you like to turn with me to the book of Acts, where we're carrying on this morning our series walking through these final chapters of uh, Acts together, and we're in chapter 25 today. Um, well, I don't know whether you've noticed, but it seems like people have stopped measuring the lockdown in weeks. People are now talking about we've been in lockdown for three months, a whole quarter of a year. And um, people are comparing it to kind of Groundhog Day, if you've seen the movie, where the days just seem to go, it's the same over and over again, and all the days just seem to be blurring into one. And as we were looking at this chapter as a staff team earlier on in the week, somebody suggested that actually, it seems like all of these chapters are a little bit like Groundhog Day as well. And they seem to all be blurring into one as Paul just keeps on this repetitive cycle of getting himself arrested and getting put on trial and getting put in prison, round and round and round. Um, so it's quite appropriate, it seems, that we're looking at this this morning. But we also know that our situation which we're in is not simply just a little bit boring or a little bit tedious like Groundhog Day. Actually, there, what has been going on in um, our society in the last weeks um, following the tragic death of George Floyd has shown that there's actually real pain and injustice um, which is being exposed in our world. And it just struck me that actually maybe in God's providence as we planned this series months ago before we knew about any of these events that were going to be happening, actually maybe he would have something to say to us from uh, Acts chapter 25, not simply just to those of us who are caught in a tedious cycle of lockdown as Paul was, but actually Paul was the victim of injustice himself. And what was it that sustained him and what enabled him to keep going as he faced into those things? Um, I hope we're going to see from this chapter. So let's pray as we come to it together. Lord Jesus, we, um, as we come to study your word this morning, maybe feeling all manner of things, we may be feeling boredom and tedium, and this lockdown cycle of repetitive life is just going round and round and all the days are blowing into one, and we're struggling to stay motivated. Others of us are feeling deep pain, and, uh, and Lord, we know that there is injustice in our society. And we just pray that as we come to look at this chapter together, where Paul was caught in a cycle of repetitiveness, but he was also the victim of injustice. Lord, that you would, just as you sustained him, just as you motivated and energised him, just as you transformed his experience, please would you transform ours as well. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story that um, we've had so far as we left it, well, Paul last week was in prison in Caesarea. And Caesarea is on the coast. It's 60, 70 miles away from uh, Jerusalem. And he's been in prison there uh, by the governor, the local governor, Felix. And he's kind of been kept there as a bit of a favour to the Jews who wanted to see him dead um, and kind of didn't really ever have a proper trial. And Paul had been there for two years, chapter 24, verse 27 says, until actually Felix, it was time for him to move on, and he was replaced, his successor, the new local governor was Festus. And immediately, um, Paul has inherited this weird situation where there's a prisoner who's there, um, who's been there for two years. And Festus wants to work out what to do about it. He wants to do everything by the book. So immediately, he's new on the job. And verse one, three days after arriving in the province, uh, Festus goes up to Jerusalem to find out what's what. And there he discovers that uh, actually after two years, you might have thought that the Jewish authorities who wanted Paul dead had calmed down. 
Maybe they'd cooled off after those two years of uh, Paul's imprisonment. Maybe you'd have even thought, if you can remember back a few chapters, to the vow that a number of them took in chapter 23, 40 men actually bound themselves by oath not to eat or drink until they killed Paul. Well, this is two years later. I wonder whether they'd kept their pact. And if so, maybe they'd uh, sort of embarrassingly given up the cause against him if they hadn't starved themselves to death by that point. Well, uh, they say to Festus, well, bring Paul up here. And their motive is actually verse three. They want to try and ambush him and, uh, and whack him along the way. Festus is having none of it. And he said, no, if you want to put him on trial, come back to Caesarea with me. And so that's what they do. Verse six, they go back to Caesarea. They convene the court. They bring Paul in before the trial. And uh, verse seven, they stood round him. They brought many serious charges, but they couldn't prove any of them. Now, Festus, his whole thing is he's just trying to keep everybody happy. He's a politician. He's a diplomat. He's trying to keep the peace. And so he, in verse 9, wants to do them a favour and says, well, look, Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem uh, to stand trial there? And maybe that will satisfy everybody. But Paul knows that if he falls into the hands of the Jewish authorities, then he's done for and they'll put him to death. He knows that his best shot at getting actual justice is to remain within the Roman system. And so he plays his trump card and says, no, I'm not going to Jerusalem. You've no right, verse 11, to send me up there. Instead, verse 11, I appeal to Caesar. And he's saying, look, I want to go to the highest court of appeal. I'm going all the way to the Supreme Court. I want to stand before Emperor Nero himself, Caesar. And so here's Festus. He's new on the job. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a local governor in provincial Caesarea in the middle of nowhere. But straight away, he's got this full-blown international diplomatic crisis on his hands. Um, as we know, I mean, the tensions between the Romans and uh, the Jews were really um, strained at this time. And many people thought that hopefully Jesus, the Messiah, was going to come and overthrow the wretched Romans and bring freedom and re-establish the kingdom of Israel. That's what they wanted. They hated the Roman occupying forces. And uh, actually, a little bit after the events that we're reading about in Acts chapter 25, there was, in fact, actually a Jewish-Roman wars. And there was full-blown war in the end, uh, which didn't end well for um, the, is- the kingdom of Israel, um, Ultimately, there was the siege of Jerusalem, the city was sacked, and the temple was destroyed in AD 70, which if you've been to Rome, you will have seen the famous Arch of Titus, which is the celebration commemorating the the Roman victory um, in Jerusalem when um, this uprising was finally squashed. Now, the man who was the final king of Israel was King Agrippa. And he was on the throne. Uh, he couldn't prevent this, the, the destruction of Jerusalem. He tried, but it wasn't happening. And so he was the last king. And he was uh, King Agrippa, the great-grandson of the original King Herod, um, the baddie from the Nativity story, who we all know. And these kings, yes, they were Jewish in religion, but they were actually loyal to the Roman Empire. They were basically puppet kings. And we know that because actually when the fall of Jerusalem finally did happen, um, King Agrippa's troops were on the Roman side, not on the Jewish side. And in fact, instead of um, being beheaded, as you might have thought that a defeated king would have been put to death at the, at the battle, uh, actually, no, he upsticks and relocated to Jerusalem as a Roman citizen. 
So King Agrippa is here, but at this point, actually, the Jerusalem hasn't yet fallen, we haven't had the Jewish-Roman War, and King Agrippa is still on the throne. And so verse 13, this is what happens. A few days later, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice arrive in Caesarea to pay their respects to the newly installed governor, Festus. And it was only natural that during that sort of state visit, they would, uh, verse 14, they were spending many days there, they would discuss this crisis. And Festus discussed Paul's case with the king because, look, here's a man here. Felix left him as a prisoner and he doesn't know what to do with him. He's caught between a rock and a hard place because uh, the Jews want him dead, but they've had a trial now and they couldn't find anything wrong. And so he can't simply release him uh, because if he did, then there would be an uprising. Sounds familiar. Well, it's during this conversation as the chapter title, the heading says, Festus consults King Agrippa. It's during this consultation, it's during this conversation that the local governor Festus has with the King Agrippa that we just get a glimpse into what it was that sustained and motivated and energised Paul through all of the ups and downs that he experienced, through all the trials they had, through all the repetitive groundhog cycle of lockdown for two years that enabled him to keep going and have hope and perseverance despite being um, on the receiving end of systemic injustice. What was it that kept him going? We get a glimpse in this conversation. So Festus describes what had happened to King Agrippa and look what happens, listening to this conversation. He says, verse 17, look, they came here with me, I didn't delay the case, but convened the court and ordered Paul to be brought in. But here's the surprise, verse 18. When the accusers got up to speak, they didn't charge him with any of the crimes he'd been expecting. He didn't charge him with any of the crimes he'd been expecting. What was Festus expecting? He was expecting there must be some grievous crime that Paul must have committed that would have justified the Jews wanting him dead, that would have justified keeping him in prison for two years. I mean, what was it? Was it uh, the fact that he must have been leading some sort of political rebellious uprising? Was he repaying violence with violence? No, it wasn't what he was expecting because as we know, verse eight, Paul had already made his defense. Look, he's done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. His conscience was clear. The Jews' problem with Paul wasn't political, it was spiritual, it was theological. Verse 19, instead, Festus says to Agrippa, surprisingly, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion. That's what this trial is all about, points of dispute about religion. And here, Festus is completely out of his depth. Festus hasn't got a clue about religion. Uh, He is not a theologian, he's a politician. And that's partly why he wants to discuss this case with King Agrippa, who at least is nominally Jewish. Festus doesn't know how to deal with uh, with something like this. Verse 20, I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. You know, to Festus, this is just like religious kind of nitpicking. Here he is trying to keep law and order and keep the peace. And here they've got bringing to him on trial. Effectively, it's like the county court. And here they are, the Baptists and the Methodists are trying to sort out their theological differences in front of me. I don't know what to do. And he doesn't know what to make of it. Um, But the interesting thing is that what looks like a kind of minor doctrinal disagreement, points of dispute about religion, what looks like religious nitpicking 
to Festus and Agrippa is actually the dynamite that blew apart Paul's world. This is actually the very thing which kept Paul going because what they're arguing about is not points of dispute, but a person, a man named Jesus. Points of dispute about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed was alive. And I just love the way that, I love that sentence. I love the way that Festus just kind of dismisses with such an offhand sentence, the most seismic event which has ever happened in the whole of the history of humanity, the resurrection of the Son of God from the dead. A dead man named Jesus, Festus says. You can almost imagine a gripper and Festus there leaning against their cushions with a goblet of wine, discussing this ridiculous case which they've got before him. A dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claims were alive. Well, of course, this dead man named Jesus whom Paul claimed was alive, was the absolute centre of everything for Paul. This was simultaneously the reason why Paul was in prison and the thing that kept him going in prison. It was at the same, the belief in the resurrection was the thing that got Paul jailed, but it was also the thing that kept him going. It was this rock solid, unshakable conviction in the resurrection of the dead that was Paul's complete uh, secret weapon and it's what kept him going and sustained him. It was not the first time that Paul had been the victim of injustice. It wasn't the first time that he'd been in prison and the resurrection and the hope that resurrection gave was what sustained him every time. This is what has been actually the, the driving force for Paul all the way through these Groundhog Day chapters, all through this repetitive cycle of arrest and trial. It's the resurrection which has been at the centre of it. Chapter 23, when Paul was on trial before the Sanhedrin. Why was he there? Verse 6, I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Chapter 24, when he's on trial before Felix, verse 21, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. And in a minute, he's going to be on trial before King Agrippa. In chapter 26, which we'll look at next week, well, what's he going to say? The same thing to, to Agrippa as well, verse 7. King Agrippa, he says, it's because, verse 7, of this hope that they're accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead, Paul asks. And so again and again, for Paul, it's hope in the resurrection that transforms everything and enables him to keep going throughout the repetitive cycle of lockdown and to keep going despite being the victim of injustice. As Paul wrote for, on another occasion from prison to the Philippian church, for him to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Because Paul believed that this dead man named Jesus, because he was alive, would raise Paul from the dead as well. That was the source of Paul's incredible confidence. It was the source of his confidence to speak out. He never stopped speaking. He barely ever get Paul to shut up talking about Jesus and the fact that he was raised from the dead. He made his own defence. Did you notice he didn't have a lawyer in verse 8? Paul made his own defence. And he spoke so powerfully about the resurrection that Felix kept listening to him last chapter for two years. And Festus is now fascinated by Paul, so much so that when he tells Agrippa about this, verse 22, after he's finished, Agrippa says to Festus, I want to hear him myself. Tomorrow you will hear him, Festus says. It gave him confidence to speak. It gave him confidence to face into um, whatever adversity was going to come his way. I mean, remember, he's already spent two years in prison. And now he's on trial, he doesn't care what happens to him. He'll face anything. Verse 11, he says, look, if I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, 
I don't refuse to die. He can face death with firm resolve because for him, it's lost its sting. Death is just a doorway into resurrection life, as we sometimes sing. Now, where does this land with us? I don't know about you, but I've been really challenged just reading this chapter over the course of this week because it's so easy to forget that the hope we have as Christians is not primarily for this life. It's so easy uh, to, to get caught up with hope just for this life. But Paul, as he says elsewhere, if only for, for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. No, it's, it, the hope is actually for the life to come. That was Paul's hope. But it's so easy to get caught up focusing on the here and now because that's what's tangible. That's what's in front of us. And by and large, um, we are privileged to live very comfortable lives. We've got a roof over our head. We've got hot and cold running water in our taps. We've got good food on our plates. We've got warm clothes on our back. We've got so many comforts. We've got money in our bank account, which allows us to kind of go on holiday. We've got so many privileges. We, our family, Hannah and I, we're expecting a baby. We've been given incredible care. Um, the NHS, the care that we've had through the midwives has been absolutely phenomenal. You know, uh, we've got Amazon that will deliver us virtually anything we want in a brown cardboard box of dreams the next day on our doorstep. I mean, it's so easy to think that actually, generally speaking, this life is pretty good. And it's so easy to think, well, then that's what this is all about, that, it, that, that this is it, that this is salvation, that this is God's great plan for our lives. And actually, the moment that some of those privileges get removed, and the moment the lockdown happens and kind of interferes with our plans, or the moment that something happens in the news or something that happens in our society to show, show us that actually um, it's not all okay in the here and now, well, then it's easy in that moment to have actually a really rather short-sighted hope and to, to hope that actually in a few months or years, actually all this will blow over, actually we will make progress, actually the lockdown will lift and we'll go back to normal. And that's really what I'm hoping for most of the time. But that wasn't Paul's hope. Paul's hope was so much bigger. Yes, Paul hoped for this life as well. Of course he did. He hoped that he was going to get out of prison. He hoped the lockdown was going to lift. And if it did, great. But that wasn't his ultimate hope. Paul's hope was so much bigger. Paul's perspective was so much greater Paul believed that this dead man named Jesus wasn't in fact dead at all, he was alive. And that means that actually, he, <laughs> after this life is over, whatever happened to Paul, his body wasn't simply gonna decompose, his spirit wasn't simply gonna be extinguished. Actually, he was gonna be raised from the dead with Christ and that Christ was gonna return and usher in a new kingdom where all oppression and injustice and hatred and violence and racism will cease and there will be a, tr a, a crowd and a multitude that nobody can count from every tribe, nation, people and tongue gathered around the throne whose kingdom will have no end, where there'll be peace and prosperity and justice and every tear will be wiped away from our eyes and there'll be no more death and no more mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things will have passed away and the earth will be renewed and there will be joy. And this was, Paul's hope was so much bigger he had resurrection hope. And I think that the challenge that I've found is that so often I claim to believe that. So often I claim to believe in the resurrection of the dead. 
But actually, I live most of my life probably as though this life is all there is. And reading about Paul as he kept going, the victim of injustice, going through a boring cycle of tedious lockdown, my prayer for myself is that the Lord would give me the same conviction that Paul had, that he would have the same perspective, and that we would believe in the resurrection, and that would be the centre of everything that we believe as well. Now, maybe this is all completely baffling. And maybe, like Festus, well, we just think this is a point of dispute about religion. And in which case, let's just investigate further. And, uh, and, and, and uh, that's point for discussion. But my prayer is for all of us that what would transform our situation at the moment, what would sustain us and keep us going, just like Paul, it did for Paul, day after day, year after year, would be the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Transform Paul, let's pray it would transform us as well. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the example of Paul, that no matter what he went through, the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, and the trials and the injustices that he faced, it was the resurrection of the dead that motivated and energised and sustained him. And it was hope in the resurrection which transformed him. And we do pray for this life. We pray that we'd all be able to go back to normal at some point. We pray that you'd sustain us in the lockdown in the meantime. And we pray for our society, which is reeling at the moment from the injustice, which is uh, so evident all around us. But Lord, we know that we have a much greater hope, that our perspective is eternal, and that ultimately we believe, as Paul did, in the resurrection of the dead. And I pray that that hope would so take hold of us, so grip us, that it would transform us in the meantime, that it would help us be motivated and energised as we go about our lives here and now, knowing that our hope is yet to come. In Jesus' name, amen.